The first reading is from the book of Exodus, chapters, or chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam said to them, or sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, as we now come to consider your word, we ask that you would sharpen our minds. Uh, but we ask you to do something that, um, uh, that, that, that sounds a little uh, scary, and it is scary. Uh, Father, we pray that just like Mary uh, proclaimed that you scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, we ask that you would scatter our pride now. And that's scary. So give us courage. Give us the courage required for that strong humility that you desire to bring us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Um, today is the third week of Advent. Uh, obviously, you can tell we're, uh, we're heading towards Christmas, uh, and what a great reminder of that great story. Um, that was fun. Um, and one of the questions we're asking during Advent, heading into Christmas, is uh, the question, why did Jesus come? What was the aim 
of Jesus' arrival and his coming. The word Advent means arrival, coming, that kind of thing. And so we're asking that question, and there's a lot of ways that we could answer the question, why did Jesus come? But what we're doing is we're looking at Mary's song. We call it the Magnificat. And you can see it in the, uh, on page 8 there, uh, Mary's poem there. We're looking at uh, a few lines of that poem each week. Now, Mary's poem, the Magnificat, is, is just a masterpiece. Some of you know that I'm just, I, I am just, I'm smitten and have been for years and years with the Magnificat. Um, and here's what I mean. Imagine that you could write a poem that took uh, all the, the primary message of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, what we call the Old Testament. Imagine you could take the primary message of the Old Testament, distill it down, and present it in a short poem. That would be amazing. And then imagine that that same poem that distills out some of the central uh, message of the Old Testament, imagine that that poem also had to do more work. It also had to uh, 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 describe some of the center, central themes of Jesus' ministry that had not yet happened. That would be even, ama even more amazing if the same poem could do all that. But then imagine, thirdly, that this same poem, which uh, sums up so much of the Old Testament and anticipates so much of Jesus' ministry, was also framed in such a way that it was the perfect way for Jesus' followers in the future to express our joy and our love and our response to God. Now, that would be an awful lot of work for one poem, yes? But the cool thing about art is that art can do more than one thing at a time. And Mary's song does a whole lot, and it does those things. 2,000 years ago, a young uh, Jewish poet named Mary composed that song, and it does all that work. It's a masterpiece. And that's why we're looking at uh, little bits of that poem all this uh, month, and trying to ask the question, how does it give us insight in why Jesus came? And I want you to look at that poem, and I want you to look, beginning at verse 50, and I want you to notice how Mary's song celebrates how the Lord overturns power structures and undermines human pride. Look at verse 50. Mary says, speaking of the Lord, she says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. Here it is. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. Now, pause there. Do you notice all the reversals? The powerful get thrown down. The humble get lifted up. Now, this week, we're going to focus on the first part, how the powerful, the proud, are thrown down. And next week, we'll pick up the idea of how the humble are exalted. But here's what I want to show you today. Why did Jesus come? One aspect of that answer is this. Jesus came to shatter human pride. And that's part of his mercy. Let me show you what I mean. And to show you what I mean, I need you to turn over to the first reading, the big long one. And here's why. So Mary, part of the masterpiece, part of the brilliance of her uh, song is 
that uh, she sees that her unborn child, whom we call Jesus, is the unexpected but perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament message. And because of that, she chooses her words in such a manner that she echoes some of the key turning points in the Old Testament. And so when Mary talks about how the Lord uh, shows the strength of his arm and brings down the mighty from their thrones, what she's doing is she's pointing back to that first reading, the long one. Now, in the first reading, you can't really see it the way we presented it, but there's two poems in the first reading. There's a big long one, and then there's a little short one at the end. The little short one at the end is by Miriam, Mary's namesake. And, it's, and the big one is an elaboration of uh, the point that Miriam makes. But both of these poems show how the Lord throws down human power and human pride. Take a look at Miriam's song at the very end, verse 21. She sums it up. She says this, Sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has triumphed victoriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, what's wrong with the horse and the rider? She's not talking about, like, horseback riding. She's talking about the fact that just moments before she sang, the Lord had defeated the greatest cavalry of, his, of their day. Back up with me here. Um, Israel, you remember, this is from the story of Exodus. So Israel, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for a very long time. And Egypt was the military and economic superpower of that day. And underneath Egypt's uh, cruelty and injustice and oppression, there was deep-seated pride. You can see this throughout the story of Exodus. Now, a word about pride. Sometimes when we use the word pride, we, mean, we use it in different ways. Sometimes we, need, we mean something positive. Sometimes when we talk about pride, we simply mean the opposite of shame. But when the Bible talks about pride, it's talking about something more sinister, more toxic. When the Bible talks about toxic pride, it's something like this. Toxic pride is when the human being centers self. We center self so that self becomes the source of our satisfaction and our security and our fulfillment. So, for example, um, uh, I might try to produce a satisfaction, security, and fulfillment for myself in, uh, in, from how I perform at work, for instance. And therefore, I would become proud based upon what I have performed at work. Or I might uh, produce uh, uh, satisfaction, security, and fulfillment for myself because of uh, how, I, how I present myself, maybe how I look, uh, 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 what I wear, whatever the case may be. And you're thinking, well, then that can't be you because look at you. No, but, you know. Um, or I might produce uh, satisfaction, security, and fulfillment for myself based upon uh, my cultural tribe, maybe, maybe what political affiliations I have, or maybe the fact that I can tell myself that I'm on the right side of history, or I can tell myself that I'm holding on to the right values or the right ideas, or maybe my cultural background, 
or maybe uh, my party, or maybe my ethnic or racial background, whatever it is, the, the idea is this. I look at something in me or something I produce to tell me I'm okay. And the thing is that pride, because self is the thing that gives me satisfaction, security, and fulfillment, what happens is that myself also becomes what I prefer, what I serve, and what I defend against all enemies. And that's why the more I look to myself to give myself security, fulfillment, and uh, satisfaction, the more I look to myself for those things, the more I'll end up being self-serving, the more I'll be uh, 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 full of myself in a narcissistic sort of way, the more I'll become deeply defensive against anybody that might challenge me. Big M, big E. Now keep that in your mind and go back to uh, Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's pride was rooted arguably in indisputable fact. Because Pharaoh had power and he had an awful lot of power. He had economic power situated on the Nile. He had military power. He had political power. And when you bring that all together, his economic and his military and his uh, political power gave him that satisfaction he sought, gave him that security he sought, gave him that fulfillment he sought. But of course, with all that power, it was constantly turning up his narcissism, his self-serving attitudes, and it made him deeply defensive. And Pharaoh had to defend his power. And the whole story of Exodus is about how he, def he tries to defend his power. And he defends his power by deploying it in order to oppress the Israelites and defy their God. Now keep that in your mind and go to Miriam's song. Can you see then why Miriam is so full of joy? Miriam's song is so full of joy because she sees that the Lord has stepped in and has shattered the previously indisputable fact of Pharaoh's power. And there's a lot to this story, but the short version is this. The Lord had broken into Israel's story and Egypt's story, and the Lord had shattered Egypt's economic power through nine plagues. You can go read about them in Exodus. And then the Lord shattered Egypt's political power with the last, the tenth plague. But then Egypt again, Pharaoh defensive and desperate, deploys the military. It goes out and seeks out Israel. And Israel was pinned down by the Red Sea with the mighty army rushing up behind them. And there the Lord opened up the Red Sea so that Israel could escape, and then the Lord closed the Red Sea upon the Egyptian army and crushed the horse and the rider. Now, let me pause here and just do a little side note. Emmanuel, when we talk about salvation, when the Bible talks about salvation, uh, here's very often what we mean. Salvation is when the Lord throws down evil and injustice and sin, and at the same time, and typically with the same action, rescues his people. And you can see that in Moses' 
song. And you need to see how all of this undermines human pride. Look at Moses' song, that's the long one, and look at verse 11. Do you see where it says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now that's a key question. Because when God saves his people, when God breaks in and throws down evil and injustice and sin and at the same time rescues his people, what happens is when that dawns upon you, it shocks us out of our self-preoccupation. It shatters our pride. It shocks us out of how we want to center ourselves. It shocks us away from merely looking at ourselves and all of a sudden we find ourselves looking at God. And it can be a frightening thing because all of a sudden we realize that God is not just a far-off deity that doesn't intersect my life. All of a sudden we realize that God is not just a character on a page, but that God has broken through that third wall and God has broken into our lives. And if you're one who is re rescued, it's a joyful thing. Verse 13. You have led your steadfast, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. But on the other hand, if you feel the force of God's judgment against your sin and you, the oppression you have perpetrated and your evil, then it will be a frightening thing. Verse 16, terror and dread have fallen upon the enemies of Israel because of the greatness of your arm. Do you notice the word arm? That's where Mary gets her image. But I want you to see that in both cases, God's salvation shatters human pride in part because God captivates us with himself. Now, with all that in mind, we need to turn over to Mary's song. Because if we stopped right here, it might sound like God's salvation is simply a matter of confronting human power or simply overturning power structures. It sounds really revolutionary. In fact, uh, in the 20th century, there were a number of nations who forbade the Magnificat, forbade Mary's song to be sung in churches precisely because some of these regimes, Guatemala and some other ones, were afraid that Mary's song would incite revolution throwing down the mighty from their thrones and exalting the humble and meek. That's a scary thing for those who are in power. And it's important that we see that Mary's song, along with all of the Bible, puts every oppressive regime on notice. The Lord has no favorites. But there's something else that we need to see. Look at Mary's song. Look at verse 51. In verse 51, she says, He has shown the strength of his arm. That's a reference to Moses' song. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's an echo of Miriam's song and Moses' song. But look at what's in between. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, I want you to see that Mary is diagnosing something that is happening within the human person. The problem is not just big structures of power that are outside us, important as they are. Don't hear me otherwise. But the problem is also rooted deep within every single human heart. Go back to Israel uh, escaping Egypt. So 
uh, they get rescued from Egyptian power. And, and in that moment, Egyptian power and pride get thrown down. But here's the funny thing. If you read the rest of the story of Exodus and the story that unfolds after it, almost immediately another problem emerges. Almost as soon as Israel is free, Israel begins showing signs of pride themselves. In fact, almost as soon as Israel gains any kind of power at all, even a little bit of power, they start to exhibit symptoms that echo Pharaoh. They start acting kind of like Pharaoh. The problem is not just in the big power of empire. And the problem with that is we can always point to something outside us. The problem is also here in our human heart. And therefore, says Mary, the Lord must throw down the powerful and the Lord must reach into the human heart and scatter the pride that is seated there secretly. And that brings us now, Emmanuel, I need to ask you a question. How aware are you of the pride that resides within your own heart? It's a really important question. Remember that pride is the centering of self, and therefore self becomes the source of satisfaction and security and fulfillment. And the more it becomes the center of uh, satisfaction, security, and fulfillment, it will increasingly make us narcissistic and self-serving, and it will make us defensive. And it will ultimately cut us off increasingly from other people, and it will cut us off from God. Pride, Emmanuel, is a terminal spiritual illness. And so I want to know, can you detect it within your heart? Or are you only able to detect pride in your opponent? Let me ask you some questions, and you can do some self-diagnosis here, okay? This will be fun. How do you respond when people criticize you? Uh, pride is reflexively defensive. Is your priority defending yourself or learning from the critique? Not taking it un uncritically. You know, not, just because somebody criticizes you doesn't mean they're right, but are you able to humbly listen to it or are you immediately defensive? Another question, how do you respond to compliments? Approval is great, but do you find that you are elated when you get compliments and you're anxious when you don't. Pride is always unstable. It's always moving from elation, they like me, to despair. How do you, another question, how do, you, how do people under your authority experience you? If the people under your authority, under your leadership, if they were to place you on a continuum between uh, 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 looking out for their best interest on the one hand and using them for your own gain and promotion on the other, where would they plot you in that spectrum? How do you relate to your own cultural tribe, however you want to define that? Are you able to learn from your cultural opponents or are you overly defensive or overly fragile 
in cultural debate. Now, I could ask a lot more questions, but can you find pride lurking within your heart? And it's crucial because, Emmanuel, our pride has to die or we are at great risk spiritually, and so are the people around us. But here's the problem. It's not that simple. It's not easy. You, you, we don't just close our eyes, scrunch our fists, and clench our teeth and say, I'm not going to be proud. In fact, try it. You'll, you'll be really proud of yourself if you, have any, if you have any success, right? Why? Think about it. Why? Because, because you're focused on yourself. And the more you focus on yourself, even if you think you're really get, becoming humble, you'll be proud of your humility and it's just crazy. But look back at Mary's song. Look at verse 51. It's not that we scatter pride from our hearts. It's that the Lord does the scattering. Just like Israel couldn't rescue herself from Egypt, we can't rescue ourselves from our pride. And just like the Lord had to destroy Pharaoh's power, the Lord has to destroy our pride. And friends, now we're ready to think about why Jesus came. Think about Jesus. If you know the story of his life, if, if you don't know the story of his life, read the Gospels, read the story. They won't take you that long. Everything Jesus does baffles the assumptions of the prideful human heart. He wasn't born in, in Caesar's house. He was born to a virgin girl. He didn't grow up in a metropolis. He grew up in flyover country, Nazareth. He, instead of living a life of security, he began his life as a political refugee, and he and eventually they got him. You see, every point in Jesus' life is meant to shatter the illusion of our pride, to shatter the belief that says real pride, real power, real security, real satisfaction is going to happen when I'm in control of everything. But no, that, that's, not what, that's not the way Jesus comes. No, God enters the world in a place of apparent weakness, and yet... In that weakness, he displays limitless power. And all of it, the deeper that story goes within your heart, the more pride will be scattered because you'll begin to see the frailty and the fragility of human pride and the power of humility. And then it all gets more crazy because you can see it happen upon the cross. Because when you see Jesus up upon the cross, it's an absolutely baffling scene. It baffled everybody. Because it's almost like the Red Sea upside down. What do I mean by that? At the Red Sea, God destroyed his enemies. And that seems like the way it's supposed to work, right? But when Jesus is up on the cross, it's like the, it's, it's like the enemies of God are killing God in Christ. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The story's supposed to work differently. It's almost like the roles have been utterly reversed. That Jesus is taking the role that, by rights, should be played by the enemies of God and of his people. And, of course, that's the point. One of the Roman soldiers saw it. Uh, one of the centurions looked at Jesus up upon the cross, whom he had just put there. And as Jesus died, the Roman centurion realized 
that this was all the wrong way round, and he realized, surely this is, he says, surely this is the Son of God. In a remarkable way, the Roman centurion could see that Jesus was suffering what by rights should have happened to God's enemies. And that's precisely the unexpected point. Because when you look at Jesus dying upon the cross, you get to see what your pride and mine deserves. We deserve to be the ones swallowed by the Red Sea, and we deserve to be the ones under God's judgment. And when you look at Jesus up upon the cross, suffering what our pride deserves, then all of a sudden you get to see Jesus Christ looking out at us as he looked at that centurion, as he looked at those who put him there, and he says, Father, forgive them. From the cross comes this word of mercy, mercy to proud hearts. And Mary anticipates it. In verse 50, Mary is able to say, the Lord's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And when you look at the cross and you see what our pride deserves, it strikes fear within the heart. But also, then we hear the mercy of God, God's word of mercy to proud hearts. And there we find our sin thrown down and we find ourselves rescued and we find ourselves crying out, this is what it means to be saved. Friends, the more that mercy lands upon your soul, the more you'll be able to see that you don't need to be the source of your satisfaction and your security and your fulfillment because Jesus gives us those things free of charge at great personal cost. And the more you see that you don't need to be your satisfaction or your fulfillment or your security, and the more you see that Jesus is, the more you'll be able to look away from yourself to Jesus Christ. And the more you look away from yourself to Jesus Christ, the more you'll be freed from your narcissism and you'll be free to be humble. And the more you'll be uh, freed from your uh, uh, self-serving behaviors and you'll be able to love people freely. And the more you'll be able to be no longer defensive, but you'll even have the power to love your enemies because you have been loved by God when you were his enemy. And so Emmanuel, the Lord in his mercy came to scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Let's ask him to do it in us, yes? And use the Magnificat. Learn it by heart. And as you pray it, use it to give your heart consent to the work of God, scattering the pride of your heart and infusing you with a humility you cannot generate yourself. And next week, we'll pick up that story of why humility is so powerful. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.